promise economic development, they promise jobs, um, they promise energy security for the area and the country as a whole, and they frame it in such a way that this, these benefits are gonna be immediate. I mean, and that's the big thing, it stands completely against the science. Welcome to the Climate Justice Central podcast, where we discuss, you guessed it, everything central to climate justice. Today's discussion sits at the very center of climate justice. Hello, my name is Ongeng Muga, a climate and environmental reporter, and my guest today is Lerato Mutsida, a social justice reporter and RLS climate justice fellow. Today we're discussing the energy rush that is pumping through the global north's veins. This scramble for oil and gas has, of course, arrived on the shores and land of the global south. And for this specific discussion, we'll be speaking more about oil and gas exploration along the South African shores. About a year ago, Shell's operations along South Africa's wild coast were halted after a court in Makanda in the Eastern Cape, found that the British oil and gas company did not conduct meaningful consultation with communities affected by its fossil fuel surveying. More recently, French energy company Total Energies was granted oil and gas exploration rights along the Cape Coast. This coast is also where South Africa's fishing culture can be said to be birthed from. Lerato is here to speak to us about some of the implications of the granting of these exploration rights, as well as hashing out who really wins and who are the losers out of this deal. Hi, my name is Lerato Mutsida. I'm a journalist from Johannesburg, South Africa. I work primarily in the spaces of social justice, human rights, and civil society. And I also have special interest in focusing on climate justice. I mean, social justice and climate justice largely intertwine. So I do dabble in a bit of climate and environment reporting. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about your project. I guess this is where you get to dabble in the climate justice stuff. Yeah, tell us about your project from, you know, where it started and where it currently stands. Primarily, I had started focusing on Shell and its plans to do seismic explorations off the wild coast. So this all came to head in about this plan Shell had to explore in the wild coast came to head from 2020 to 2022, when civil society movements really galvanized against the exploration project because of the not only environmental and climate implications, but the socioeconomic implications it had for the surrounding community. Shell and the government and the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy was really pushing to explore the ecologically sensitive and pristine wild coast, but they were taken to court by host of civil society movements and environmental movements, and eventually the Makanda High Court in 2022 decided that their permit to do the seismic explorations was awarded unlawfully and basically halted the project. But government and multinational corporations being the way that they are, 
even though the courts have sided with the people, are still pursuing legal actions to explore for gas and oil in that region. Court has indicated that when the court gave Shell and the government to leave to appeal the decision, but it did indicate that it doesn't feel like Shell has a strong case. So that project is kind of up in the air and a win for civil society and the environment as a whole. But on the other hand of the coin, you have Total Energies on the west coast of South Africa. They've been given the green light by the Department of Forestries, Fisheries and the Environment um, now in October, actually, to actually drill off of the west coast that is a project that has been cemented. It's going to happen. And yeah, they've invested about $3 billion in that project. And it's going to span about 10 kilometers between that region. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we're just, you know, South Africa's just being harvested for like fossil fuel projects and resources at this point. But yeah, I think what I wanted to get from you is, you know, what is the the benefit that's being promised from these projects? And then also expand on, you know, how these, how that promise is actually playing out and really how these people are being exploited that are within the vicinity of these projects. So, you know, the promise of these projects are very routine. You see it everywhere you go where there are plans for extractivism and, and exploitation of the land. They promise economic development. They promise jobs. Um, they promise energy security for the area and the country as a whole. And they frame it in such a way that this, these benefits are going to be immediate. You know, they don't say it explicitly, but they imply it like, yeah, these benefits are going to be immediate and you're going to feel it immediately. But then the thing is that the perceived benefits that never really play into the hands of the communities where these projects disrupt their lifestyles and disrupt their cultural practices and their livelihoods, the benefits never reach those communities. And all they get are the consequences, which is in a long-term, in a more a long-term framework, climate crisis manifestations, coastal erosion, mass migration of marine life, which they depend on like fish and stuff like that, destruction of coral reefs and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is true. And I think a lot of these, you know, regions are in such isolated areas and never like in the capital. And so when, you know, the fiscus is distributed, it never really reaches. And yeah, like you said, you know, it's they're just climate consequences that they're left with. Yeah, so I wanted you to also expand on how the people's society, environment and culture are impacted by your project. So the people, let's start with the people. The people who live in the coastal towns where these projects are earmarked and they're planned to happen, their livelihoods are disrupted. Obviously, the area that they use for fishing, that's disrupted, that's halved and they really don't have access to that livelihood anymore. And there's also an element that not many people talk about, but that is just as pressing, which is cultural and spiritual practices that are um, disrupted as well. In South Africa, particularly the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape, a lot of traditional practices do happen in the water. The water holds a cultural and 
spiritual significance. And when when the waters are disrupted and the ocean is, is disrupted by man-made projects, that disrupts the spiritual realm of those spiritual practices. In terms of the environment, I mean, with seismic exploration, we all know that the air horn blasting changes the behavioral practices of marine life from whales to dolphins to even the tiny little plankton. And it also changes the it changes their behaviors, but it also affects their communication. So these animals use sonar, like their their communication largely happens through sonic, yeah, sonic communication. So when the air horn blasting interferes, it 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 disrupts their communication. the The list of um consequences for marine life, it goes on. I think I'd like you to expand. You know how this particular project stands against science suggestions to end fossil fuel exploration in the face of the climate crisis? I mean, and that's the big thing. It stands completely against the science. The science says that in order to keep warming below 1.5 degrees, we need to cease all new fossil fuel projects and cut down on the fossil fuel projects that we already have, the projects that are already generating energy through fossil fuel. But now we've seen in recent years an expansion of the number of fossil fuel projects that are looking to gas and oil to harness energy and create energy. So it goes completely against it. And instead of investing resources into renewable energy sources like wind and solar, you see governments and these companies like burying the head in the ground and remaining steadfast in the assertion that oil and gas and coal is the future and is the only way to realize energy security, especially in a region that is suffering from energy insecurity and inconsistent supply of energy. And I really feel like that argument, the energy security argument, is used by these companies, these actors, to justify these projects. But at the end of the day, the benefits of these projects aren't short-term. They're not instantaneous. They're long-term. And the energy question is short-term. We need short-term solutions. And the evidence is there that getting a renewable energy project off the ground is faster, not necessarily fast, but it is faster than getting a new oil or gas or fossil fuel project off the ground. So it's sort of like this cognitive dissonance or willful defiance from oil companies, fossil fuel companies and government in terms of accepting the science as fact and making policy and making business and economic decisions based on that. Yeah, we've seen, you know, the whole neocolonialism angle, you know, fully play out in, 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 you know, play out in full effect rather. And yeah, and I wanted to get a sense just to wrap up, you know, how you hope your reporting will shift the narratives around the understanding of, you know, the Total Project or the Shah Project. So I want, I don't want to call myself a cynic, but I'm largely a cynic. I have the hope that my reporting will shift the narrative. I have the hope that it will create discourse 
amongst different stakeholders, not just people in the energy space, not just civil society organizations in the energy space, but vulnerable communities, affected communities, and the South African population as a whole as to whether this is the type of development that we want for the country and whether it is going to benefit uh, the country and fit into our development goals. But that's the hope, you know. But in reality, I think maybe, yeah, civil society, people who engage with the the material, with the stories that come out of it, maybe they it will start discourse in terms of that area. But I know for a fact that with government, with the policymakers, with the agenda setters, that it's just going to be like white noise. So I think that's our challenge as journalists on how to get the decision makers to listen. Yeah, absolutely. It can feel really hopeless, you know, as a journalist writing all of these stories and feeling like the needle is not shifting. But I think we can definitely rely on, you know, the the chain of, of communication. So we write the story and, you know, we fire up civil society and yeah. civil society goes into the communities and informs and hopefully that sort of yeah creates a butterfly effect of of instilling change. But yeah, thank you so much for for sharing your perspective and uh, insight on the story. And yeah, let's hope that, you know, the discourse will will indeed change. But yeah, thank you so much, Lerato uh, Mutsira, social justice reporter with the Daily Maverick in Johannesburg. Thank you so much, Onke. Okay.